Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. So we are in Parshat Lech Lecha this morning. We are beginning the story of Avraham Avinu and Sarah Imenu, Abraham our father, Sarah our mother. Um, as you know, anyone who converts to Judaism becomes Bat or Ben Avraham Sarah. or if people don't want to use gendered language, folks are often saying now Mi Beit from the house of uh, and we would say Avraham Vesara. So um, this this truly is for us our mythical father and mother. Uh, th- this is where we locate the beginning of our particular people. We've come through the story of creation. We've come through the story of Noah. So we've come through the story of the creation of the whole world. Then what happens in that world? Noah, a very particular family, becomes the ancestor. <clears throat> with his wife of everyone after that, now comes with the call to Abraham, calls the beginning of the story of this particular family. Uh, Noah, even though it's a particular family, is the family of humanity, right? They're the progenitors of the entire business of humanity. With the call to Abraham comes the beginning of the stories of the founding of this particular family, this particular people. We know it doesn't stop there. We know it also becomes, of course, the founding um, patriarch of both uh, Christianity and Islam. Uh, and so it doesn't stop with that, but it starts with the story of this particular people, the descendants of Avraham and Sarah, the Jewish people. All right, so we we come to the story of Avraham a little bit out of nowhere. We jump kind of into the middle of it. Um, we get the generations iterated, but then we just kind of jump into Lech Lecha. So I'll show us a few verses before, but it's also like we kind of come in mid-story. It's like we don't know anything about Avraham's character. We don't know anything about Avraham before he's kind of, you know, has this encounter. We, we, we don't know what's going on with Avraham. So, so lots of questions arise in the Midrash, in the rabbinic literature about why Avraham? Who is this guy? Like, what's going on with him? What makes him so special? Because we're told nothing. We kind of really jump in in the middle. And that's upsetting a little bit to the rabbis because, like, they want to know a little bit more about what's going on. Um, and so there's many Midrashim about why Avraham. Um, uh, and so this is, and a lot of people, by the way, think this is in the Torah, the story of Abraham smashing the idols, right? So a lot of us grew up with that story that Abraham's father, Terach, is, of course, an idolater because that's the religion of Mesopotamia, is paganism. And that Abraham goes into, and that his father makes and sells psalim, idols. And that Abraham goes into his father's shop one night and smashes all of the idols and when his father comes in the next day and says, what have you done? Abraham said, I don't know what you're talking about. And like, I guess he'd stuck a stick in one of the, you know, the idol's hands. And he said, you know, this guy did it. And, and Terach is like, how could that be? It's just a, it's just a idol. Duh. And Abraham's like, duh. So if it's just an idol, why are you worshiping, right? Something that you yourself are admitting has absolutely no power. 
Of course, it is a horrible misrepresentation of paganism. People do not worship idols. That is, so either it's on purpose, the rabbis know that, and they're just demonizing paganism, or the rabbis are ignorant of the real meaning of paganism. But nobody worships an idol. You worship the god that the, or goddess that the idol represents. So in any case, um, so this is, this is a very famous midrash, so famous that most people believe it's in the Torah, um, that, uh, that Abraham smashes his father's idols. Why do I say that? That is one famous example of the rabbis trying to do a little backstory on why Abraham was chosen. Because Abraham knew even as a child that it was impossible to worship fetishes of wood and whatever and call oneself like a person of real faith. That makes no sense. Um, and so we're going to look, maybe if we have time, we're going to look at one midrash that I really love because I think it's really pertinent right now, given the elections in Israel, given what's going on in our country. Um, there's a there's a midrash that I find r- really powerful for this moment. We'll see if we have time. Okay. So we can, you know, look here uh, a little bit before uh, our story begins. When Terach, Abraham's father, had lived 70 years. He begot Avram. Remember his name at this point is Avram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the line of Terach. Terach begot Avram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran begot Lot. Haran died in the lifetime of his father Terach in his native land or of the Chaldeans. So this is where our story begins is in Ur. Avram and Nahor took wives for themselves, the name of Avram's wife being Sarai, and that of Nahor's wife Milka, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milka and Iska. Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terach took his son Avram, his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Avram, and they set out together from Ur of the Chaldeans for the land of Canaan. We are not told why. We have no idea why. But when they had come as far as Haran, they settled there. We are not told why. <coughs> when we studied Sarai, I brought you some texts about the city of Ur and the city of Haran and the connection of the the priestesses of those places. It's it's very interesting if you dig into it, but we're not going to do that. Um, the days of Terach came to 205 years, and Terach died in Haran. Okay, then we jump into our story. So, you know, we, we're we not told anything other than kind of the names of this family that uh, Avram's wife, Sarai, meaning princess, uh, is barren. If you'll recall, when we've talked about Sarai, uh, princess, often the high priestess was the sister of the king. So it makes complete sense if we're looking at Sarai as a possible, the roots of Sarai, if we're looking for that in uh, Mesopotamian priestesses, it makes perfect sense. Princess, wife of, uh, sister of the king was often the high priestess. Lots of evidence to support, lots of evidence. We have very little evidence for anything, but um, that, that we're dealing with probably a pedimento of characters, both in Avram and in Sarai. In Sarai's case, uh, Women of power, women of religion, women uh, in Mesopotamian uh, culture, the ways that they had power was often through being a priestess. Okay. But this is where we start. This is where we jump into our story with Parshat Lech Lecha, chapter 12, verse 1. 
Vayomer Adonai el Avram, Lech lecha, Me'artzecha, Umi Moladatecha, Umi Beit Avicha, El Haaretz Asher Areka. So the, the, we get no preamble, we get no idea what's happened before this. All we know is that Yudhe Vavhe appear, uh, says to Avram, doesn't appear. That's actually important. There's no appearance here of God. There's only God speaking to Avram. We have no indication that God has ever spoken to Avram before. We have no indication that God hasn't spoken to Avram before. We have no indication that God has appeared to Avram. Usually God appears and says, or God appears and then says, or there's a malach. Out of absolutely nowhere, yod speaks to this guy Avram and says, Lech Lecha. So this is the reason, one of the reasons, that this is such a famous call and so open to uh, Midrashic interpretation is because grammatically, this doesn't really make sense. Um, we have made sense of it. So for a lot of us, we just read over it. Um, or if you're just reading the English, you trust the English, which you know, if you learn with me, never to do. Um, go forth. <laughs> no. So, well, yeah. So that's because that's what it, that's ultimately what it means. But lech, the command form, you singular masculine go. But what's after that, after that dash that you see in the Hebrew, um, doesn't make a lot of sense to add. Lech lecha. Because lecha, of course, in Hebrew means literally to you. So it doesn't, no, it's not reflexive. No, because there is no such thing. A reflexive verb is something you do to yourself. I brush my hair. That in French is a reflexive verb. Because it's something I do to myself. I can't lech to myself. I can't go to myself. That That isn't a verb that is reflexive. And this is not the reflexive form of the verb. It's lech, go. That is not reflexive. Lech, lecha, go to you. Okay. So, I mean, that's literally what it says, but that doesn't make any sense. So, obviously, it must be some kind of emphasis, this using the verb twice in this weird format has to be some kind of emphasis. This is a massive going. This is not just your regular go to Ralph's. Go to the 76 station and have your tire checked on your, your pressure checked on your tires. This is something else. So possibly that's the reason for, literally the reason for the grammatical anomaly. But that's not fun enough or deep enough for the rabbi. So we're going to look at some deeper interpretations, of course, of Lech Lecha. Um, but, but we get a little bit of an understanding of what exact, why it's so intense, why it's such a, a weird way of saying it, and how big a lecheng this is going to be by what comes next. Lech lecha, go, whatever, however we want to translate lecha, right? Go, me'artzecha, from your land. Umi moladetcha, and, that's a hard word in Hebrew, and from the place of your birth, Umi Beit Avicha, and from the house of your father. You could read ancestor here. That's what they mean when they say father in this sense. You know, your your ancestral house. El Haaretz Asher Eka, Ar Eka, to the to the land that I will show you. So, wait a minute. 
Yudevave that we've never known to encounter Avram before. There's no vision. There's no malach. Just God's voice saying, leave your land, the place you were born, your ancestral house to a, to a land that I'm going to show you. Okay. So remember the ancient world. Your safety comes from kinfolk. Your safety comes from your tribe. When you get up and leave all of that, you leave everything in the universe that keeps you safe. You are now completely vulnerable, and he doesn't even know where he's going. So he's got absolutely no direction. He has no idea why. He Well, we're going to get a little bit in a second, but, but truly no reason why. And... And like no assurance you're going to be safe. Here's how this is going to work, right? But the piece you read before, didn't he already leave with his father? He, they the, were in, he, right, so, but no he has settled. They have settled together in Haran. Okay, but that's not the place of his birth. Well, they've already started a journey. Correct. They've started a journey, but he's. But but we. What we have to assume from this is that there is a way that where he is now is connected to the land of his birth, right? That it is not completely other. It is not completely different. It, you know, it's like Texas from, you know, Louisiana. Or he started out with Which his, may be a different uh, land. But. Or he started out with his father, and this is the command to go out on his own and to separate from his Well, clearly it is that. Leave your father's house. It is very clear. He's he's now going on a journey that does not include the rest of his family, right? And that is not about whatever they were doing before. Presumably, they had some idea of where they were going, and there was some reason for stopping in Haran. But whatever those things are, this is now something else entirely. Last week, or what have you, uh, Noah was told to build an ark. Was the conversation very similar to this? Uh, build an ark and you will, your people will grow and... Well, but Noah gets an explanation about why. Cause I'm, I'm fixing to destroy the world with water. And so you're gonna need a boat. A really big one. Right? The, Avram's, let's go on so that we can see what Avram is told. What is he told after to the place to the land that I will show you? I'm heavily influenced by Debbie Friedman in my in my uh, translation. And um, so, and I will make of you goy gadol, a large goy nation, and I uh, and I will bless you, and I will magnify your name, and you will be a bracha. You will be a blessing. Now, put aside that you know Debbie Friedman, people, and come to this with beginner's mind, right? What the heck does that mean? I will bless those who bless you and curse the ones who curse you, and all the families of the earth shall bless themselves through you. V'nivrechu v'cha. And they will bless in you, who will all the families of the Adama, of the, of the earth. So remember, Adama, we have the resonances now of the earthling, Adam. We have the destruction of Adama because of all of the Hamas that's happening. 
right? So Adama's destroyed, and now we get all the mishpachot, all the families of the Adama are after this moment going to bless themselves through you. Okay? Very clear. Avram went forth as Yudhevafe had commanded him, and Lot, his nephew, went with him. Avram was 75 years old when he left Haran. Okay, so one of the conversations that is missing for the rabbis here is what exactly did Avram say to Sarai? Let's get out. Honey? Right? So we'd love to know that conversation. Um, and if we take seriously Sarai's Mesopotamian heritage, which we have to, because there is no other one in that area at this time. Avram's the beginning of this new nation, right? So there's just, she's Mesopotamian. She's got her relationship to her culture, her language, her family, her religion. Well, probably she's with his family now. Her religion, her whatever, right? And he's like, okay, so you'd hey, vove hey. Doesn't that sound like a groovy name for a deity? What do you say? We hang out with him for a while, and he wants us to leave everything and go to a place that uh, he's gonna show me. And we're gonna, I'm gonna be a, you know, huge people. That means you're gonna have, you know, kids. And, um, yeah, so what do you think? Right? So, I'd love one of you to write that conversation up, and let's look at that next time. Um, but certainly one conversation that's missing. So a little bit here about um, the why. The why you're leaving is so that you will be a, a goy gadol, a huge nation. Sarai's childless. She has no son. You can't perpetuate your forget nation, your own tribe, unless you have a son, right? So she has no son. You're going to be a great nation, and all the peoples of the earth are going to bless themselves through you. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. You're going to be a bracha. What the heck does any of that mean? All right. So he's given a reason ostensibly, but then and then it stops right there. Okay. Yeah, get comfortable, Lee. Okay. So let's look a little bit. Uh, I spent some time in the sandbox, as you can see. So here we have Genesis 1 through 3 that we just read. All right. So looking at um, Rabbi Mark Margolius, he goes back to some of the sources and says, Rashi, remember remember what we go to Rashi for? What do we go to Rashi for? The pshat. We go to Rashi to understand the literal words of the Torah. Rashi is the expert in language, and he will always try to answer the question why this weird grammatical form without getting all flowery. Just simply, what does it actually mean? We always go to him. He will always give you the medieval French term so that you can be clear what's happening. Okay. Right? He lives in Provence. Rashi's in Provence. So he's going to always give us the ten hundreds French for whatever word we're confused about. Rashi interprets the enigmatic phrase lech lecha to mean for your own benefit, 
for your own good. If Avram travels to the new land, he will benefit from the blessing of offspring and be renowned through the world for his good character. So Lech Lecha doesn't mean literally go to you. It means go for you. This is for you, Avram, that I'm telling you to do this. That's why it's this weird form, because it's telling us that God is saying to Avram, this is not just about me, God forbid. This is about, this is all for you. Reflecting a different stream of interpretation, the 19th century Eastern European commentator Malbim understands the phrase as go to yourself, an instruction for Avram to discover his own essence by casting off the negative influences he had inherited from his homeland, his native place, and his paternal home. In the same vein, a 17th century Italian Kabbalist reads this verse as addressed to every person. Search and discover the root of your soul so that you can fulfill it and restore it to its source, its essence. The more you fulfill yourself, the closer you approach your authentic self. This is the sense of know yourself, to know your very self so that you can rectify yourself and I will help you, says God. All right, so you can see the move from the shot, from the very literal interpretation, and then the move as we start moving into, you know, by the time we get to the 19th century, it's about self-discovery, which you don't do till you're 75. I'm so going to be happy when that happens. In the 11th century, the word for two and four in the long doy are the same word. What? In in in, In the south of France... In the 11th century, the word for two and four are the same word. So for Rashi, go you to you would make complete sense to translate it as go you for you. Lovely. Um, so, uh, so for Rashi, it's not so confusing, right? If two and four in French are the same, are the same word, um, then that would make sense. All right. Um, Aviva Zornberg, in her amazing commentary on Genesis, called The Beginnings of Desire. If you don't have it, you should. Here begins the journey of Lechacha with its strange order of abandonments. First land, then community. Leave that which produced you as one possible realization of its potential. So so this this strange order of abandonments, first your land, then your community, and finally your father's house. For the first time, says Aviva Zornberg, a journey is undertaken not as an act of exile and diminution. Think Adam and Chava, Cain, right, after he kills Abel, and the Tower of Bavel folks, right? All of these are enforced, and they are about in her language, exile and diminution. But as a response to a a divine imperative that articulates and emphasizes displacement as its crucial experience. For what is most striking here is the indeterminacy of the journey. What is left behind, canceled out, is defined, clearly circled on the map of Avram's being, but his destination is merely the land that I will show you from your land. The landscape of your basic self-awareness to a place that you will know 
only when the light falls on it with a difference. It 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 seems that uh, in a way the language is a remnant uh, that indicates that this is also intended as a metaphor for an internal journey. So I I think so. Mark is saying that um, that the way it's written kind of it, it suggests that it's a metaphor for the actual thing that has to happen if we are going to take a journey to the self, an internal journey. These are the things that have to happen. And and I think it's fair to say, based on what Zorenberg is saying, that there is a sense of, um, and she writes about it other places too, um, abandonments of where we have come from that has to happen before some something else can emerge. And she talks a lot about the work. I think we talked about this off off record last time. Um, Richard is uh, she she quotes the work of Winnicott a lot. The the thank you, D.B. Winnicott. She talks about his work in talking about infants, and and this ties into Sarai had no valad, had no issue, had nothing that she had birthed. And what Zornberg is saying is that's right, because some things have to happen before before something can be born. And there is there are stages of abandonments that have to happen, leave takings that have to happen before something else can be issued, literally. And so she she quotes the work of Winnicott when she says, if you're constantly giving an infant stuff, you oh, here's something shiny, oh, here's something distracting, and you hand it to them, they don't learn to crawl. How do babies learn to crawl? The baby first discerns something's missing. I mean, they don't have the language for this, obviously, but I lack something, and it's over there. I want that, but it's, but there's a missingness. Yes, they're curious, but they, they don't have something that they want and they see it. That longing to have something that they don't have is what drives them to reach. And as soon as they reach, then they pull. Then, the, right, and that's how they learn to crawl. That's how they learn agency. And she says that missingness is what is critical for us to walk, for us to journey, for us to move. We have to be in touch with something's missing. And we don't like that as moderns, as Americans in 2022. It means we have been unsuccessful. We are unfulfilled. We, right, we, we, we did something wrong. We, and she says, no, it is absolutely clear here. It is the critical awareness that is the only thing that will begin the process that leads to the birth of something new for us is this, this lacking something and the awareness of lacking it and the desire to go get it. I have a, Quick question. Yes. Yeah. So, um, it was suggested earlier that uh, this was written as if it could also be a metaphor for an internal journey. But I wonder if, in the archaeological or literary records, were there any any civilizations at this time that were writing literature? I'm talking now 
you know, 10th centuries being written that actually had a sense of internal dialogue. And clearly there's metaphor, but, you know, people thinking about their own internal motivations for what they're doing, that doesn't appear in like any literature that I'm aware of until more modern times. Right. So, so is it self-consciously metaphor? I have absolutely no idea. It's, you know, like you're saying, it's doubtful. However, the, all of the all of the rituals that are arranged for adolescents, let's say, is about a journey. So it's not like people are unaware, right? They craft a metaphoric journey of leaving the hut, leaving their mother, leaving their parents, and going out into the scary thing that is set up for them. And they set up terrible, horrible things for them, right? So so that they are terrified and alone and only together with their peer group. So. And then they return and their status has changed and something is different and something new is born. So, so I think it's, it's there in awareness anthropologically, whether or not it's self-aware. I, I'm not expressed above my pay grade. You know, um, the, there always was, um, a notion of an internal world, but it was objectified. It was, it was the dream world. Dreaming was always was always present. So you're saying there there is an internal journey. People are aware of that. They just externalize it. Yeah. And, in, in and the, the ancient world. And, and the dream is the dream is an internal. It's but one also, of them. But you know, there's also something else I wanted to mention. I don't know if it's irrelevant. If it is, I'll just stop. But Winnicott, uh, an, another major concept of uh, Winnicott's is the notion of the transitional space, transitional objects, and transitional space. And it, and that's connected with the notion that uh, another notion of his that there's no such thing as a baby. There's only a baby and a mother. Without a mother, there is no baby. Yeah, because the infant doesn't exist right. for itself unless mother responds. Right, and you know the the, the elaboration of that that could go on for a long time. Yes, but I think it's right. Well, I mean, some would say that it could go on. Yeah, well, it's called four more books. I mean, but it, that it does go on, right? The Torah is the iteration of the rest of that journey. Okay, let's look a little bit here at uh, Mehmet. You want to say something? Unmute. Um, yes, just a quick comment. I think we have to bear in mind who this is, who this entire story is written for, and uh, whom it is addressed to as well. It is, I mean, to anyone here in the room, uh, physically and uh, online. I think Lech Lecha uh, me is 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 a story of of our own family of our own it's it's our own story. So uh, the internal the internal journey uh, and physical journeys are we, we are obliged to do them anyway. I mean we we've known them for centuries and thousands of years. This is a Jewish story, and um, we all have to move somewhere else at at a certain point of time. And none of us are sure how long we're going to be there where we are right now. And when we move somewhere, we rather make it a personal and internal journey as well. So we uh, revitalize ourselves. We rediscover ourselves. We reinvent ourselves. Uh, This is the only way Jews can survive. So this text is certainly for Jews. All right. Thank you, Mehmet. Um, I'm just going to add a friendly challenge to that, which is some people don't leave. Some people don't ever leave. They're born and they're raised and they stay and they don't go anywhere and they live as adults in their parents' houses that they grew up in. So like they're, so I think you're right. This is a Jewish story because I think this is a story of should. 
on some level, not a story of if you of, ever if you ever have to go, then you know how to go. Yes, for sure. You Jews who are going to have to go, little did they know how much. Um, but remember, this is stories written down by a people who are in its land. The people are in their land. The people have, you know, and they have sovereignty in their land, you know. And so it's an interesting juxtaposition of here we are settled in the land of Israel. These are our origin stories of when we had to leave, right? And, and got here to Kna'an, which becomes Israel, right? It's just, so it's kind of, I don't know. It's just, it's interesting that it, it's, it's looking to the far past to, explain how we got here, little did we know it was going to describe so well the Jewish future, right, after we lose sovereignty in the land. And to that point, Mehmet, it is a Jewish story, not necessarily an Israelite story, right? Right? The Israelites trace their origins to this story, but it becomes a Jewish story because once you have Jews, you have exiles, <laughs> right? And you have, and you have persecutions. All right, David, were you going to say something or what's no, happening? You actually made the exact point that I was going to say, it, the, the, that the that this is sort of a personal version of the Exodus. Yeah, I think, you know, that... Although, although the Exodus is about liberation from and service to, right? For Avram, it's like, he's not oppressed. There's, there's no suffering attached that we know of to him. So... So yes, it's kind of on the individual level, him leaving for sure. There's resonances of we will leave Egypt for sure, but it is very much the individual, the individual family versus the nation in, in those two leave takings. But you, you can't read these texts without, of course, reading what's going to happen later. Ah, I don't want to leave the meeting. Um, what's going to happen later, right? Which is, uh, which is the exodus. Um, and so, you know, this is where, what's his chops? Um, this is where Micha Goodman argues it starts with, with Avram leaving Mesopotamia. In a few paragraphs, he's going to go down to Egypt because there's a famine, right? And um, he leaves Mesopotamia. It's the, it's the leave-taking from the great metropolis, from the great empire, Right, and that the entire Torah ends with us back in Mesopotamia and back in Egypt. That the whole the whole Torah is a story of kind of the failure of the project. Okay, I have a question, and if we look at the internal journey, mm. that we all look inward to say, how did I get here? And certainly, I am not a therapist, and there are many therapists in this room <laughs> and online that can. Uh, validate me or not but we look at um where did i come from what kind of upbringing did i have why did i decide this and then we go um toward the place when we look inward i don't know it's sort of okay so we're, we're going sense. there we're, we're gonna get there all right okay so let's go to the commentators who are going to develop Asked, do you see anything that connects Abraham's motivation for actually going? Abraham's what? Motivation for actually going in, in the same way that you talk about a baby being motivated to crawl because there's something there. Do you see any of that in this story, though? Here's just, it sounds to me like there's just God going, you go. That's his motivation. That's right. 
that fear that that's <laughs> or or this power speaking to him that he's never encountered before but that mm. says this is the you know the next step yeah so but mm. what i was talking about was right so the what zorenberg is pointing out is it makes perfect sense that it's leave this leave this leave this because there's a series of abandonments that have to happen for us to be missing something our connection to that is in some way the missing that that allows for us to reach for something right. else. So, no, it's not articulate. She doesn't articulate what that is. All right. So let's look at Rabbi Shlomo Dovber the, uh, of Lubavitch, so one of the early Lubavitcher sources. From the time that God said to our fa- our father Avraham, go forth, go from your land, and Avraham went on journeying southward, began the process of Birurim, of extracting the sparks of holiness that are scattered throughout the universe and buried within material existence. By the decree of divine providence, a person wanders about in his travels to those places where the divine, where the sparks that are to be extracted by her await their redemption. The cause of all causes brings about the many circumstances and pretexts that bring a person to those places where his or her personal mission in life is to be acted out. Okay, very wordy, but very much you can see this shift to needing a spiritual interpretation of Lech Lecha that is gonna, Jody, I promise, go to an inner journey. But this one sounds like there's lots of places that we go. There's lots of places that we wander. And that is about we are the only ones who can go to that place at that time under those circumstances and liberate the sparks of the divine that are trapped there. It was only Amy Rose Bernstein who could go to the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College in 1992 and live on McCallum Street in apartment 305, September of 92. It's only I had to be there to liberate the sparks that only I could liberate, meaning not all gatherings would be vegetarian. So that, so each of us, right, have, Part of the whole point, the reason we wind up where we wind up is because only we can liberate the sparks because of our own history, our own attachments, what formed us, what made us, who we are, what we're not, our breakages, our challenges. Only we can liberate the sparks in that location at that time. And that's part of what the uh, Rabbi Dove Bear is suggesting. Um. Through the conversation, I was thinking about what you said about, you know, the search and to discover the source of our soul, the inner meaning. But I almost feel like you look within, you leave the land, you leave your father's house, and you go and you make a new community. So you can have whatever conversation with your inner feelings and your inner soul, but it seems to be successful if it's connected or you create a new community. And so um, metaphorically, I was thinking, like, the bar mitzvah kids, or you go to Shabbat tonight, and then you have your bar mitzvah, and then you go to college, and you got to leave, and you might get married, and you move to another location. If, in fact, you miss that feeling of K.I., what if you don't ever come back? But then you go somewhere else to create something like you had at K.I., but it's in a new place. So um, I think that's um, the goal of Lech Lecha, to go Although, out. 
Although to push on that, if I'm going to push on it then, then it's like you're saying, but it's to replicate the things well, I had at mom, home. No, no, no. That's the mommy and me talking. My children. But, I understand you know, that, Dana, having just had a kid leave for college. Well, I completely no, 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 understand. No, no, no. Think about, um, I guess Abraham's dad died, but, you know, when when the kids go off, there's the story about the people, the family that stays at home when they go off. I'm so so anyway, I just want to, okay. I'll say again, but yes, they have to go. What I'm going to say to refine what you're saying in a way that lines up more truthfully for me is that they, we have to let them go build what they're going to build. Building what they had at KI is exactly what Avram is not supposed to do. He's supposed to go build something else. What's hard for us, I think, for me, I will just say for me, what's hard for me is to let her go build what she wants to build that is very hard, right? Like, if she wants to build what I built here, gesundheit, I will help fund it, I'll come volunteer, but wait, you're going to you're gonna create what you want to create? What you want to see happen? Based on what? On what you've experienced? What do you know? You're five minutes old, right? So that, that I mean, I think that's part of the work here is it and then how do each of us get to an authentic sense of what we want to build when are we just building what we were told we were supposed to build because that's what we grew up with and we still schlep that around right don't we am i the only one in the room like right we schlep that around what we think we're supposed to have been about building or what the society tells us we're supposed to be about building i just had this conversation with a congregant 63 years old yesterday at lunch just had this conversation. Am I building truly what I think is a successful life? Or am I listening to the voices around me that say, yeah, but your house really isn't kind of up to snuff if you're, if we're really talking success, look around people. Your house is not $10 million. I see what you drive. Um, it ain't the highest whatever Tesla or whatever Peugeot, whatever. Like it's, Truly, we just had this conversation. Do are, Am I building what I think is a successful life or am I still measuring success and what that looks like by what society, American west side of Los Angeles society tells me is a successful life? I think this is one of the core, the, the core meanings of the story of Avram leaving Everything that's familiar, including the reference points for what makes for success. He's got no indication he's going to have a kid, but one of the marks of success, even for him in this new place, is going to be offspring, right? And he's got no evidence for that. You're talking about the building stage of your life, and there comes a point when you have to accept the fact that that building stage is kind of over, and you have to accept that you're no longer part of so, the builder. So even if we're not talking about building, even if we're talking about right. the next stage, it's acceptance. whose definition of success do I go by? Right. Mine or what everyone else tells me? If I have grandchildren, I'm good. Then I have oh. lived a successful life. If they talk to you even better, you're super successful. That's the right? eternal So it doesn't part. matter what stage you're in. The, the, the learning is the same. The by learning. what standards do I decide that this is a life that is worthy of my, you know, that is, that's going okay. okay. Exactly. And so you have to leave. Accepting. Oh my God. Okay. Here we go. Could you shot Levy for you, Jody? For this is a great general principle to every place that a person goes, 
that person goes to their origin, their source, their roots, meaning you don't really go out there ever. You're always going to your source, to your root, to your origin. For, of course, in that very place lies one's origin, source, roots, and that person needs to elevate them. To this is said, lech lecha, go to yourself, yourself, to your origin, to elevate those sparks. So th- this ab- absolutely is there in the Kedushat Levi, what you were talking about, right? So we're going to go to Rabbi Art Green, who's also going to say something similar. Rabbi Art Green points out that many Jewish metaphors for the divine are vertical, inviting us to seek God in the mountains or in the heavens. He reminds us that Jewish tradition also includes other metaphors, which invite us to seek holiness or wholeness by going deep within ourselves. We can conceive of this, he writes, as a journey inward, where the goal is ultimately a deep level of the universe within the self, rather than the top of a mountain or a ride in the clouds. The danger is that this might serve as a prescription for preoccupation with self. But according to Rabbi Green, the self is potentially a great gateway to deeper connection with others. This inwardness, he writes, is not only that of the individual, but the shared inner self of the human heart. How much do you love that? The inwardness is not only that of the individual, but the shared inner self of the human heart, the human community and the world around us. Inwardness means the one is to be found within all beings. Boom! Yes. So along those lines, um, in the recovery literature, people talk about doing a geographic or um, those who are who are lost um, go to India to, you know, study um, whatever flavor of the day, you know, spirituality they have. And Balshuvas talk about finding what one is searching for in one's in one's own um, background and one's own history and one's own liturgy. Um, and I think at, at the end of the day, talking about a relocation, talking about a, a, a move really is talking about wherever it is that you go is really talking about going inward and uh, observing one's own innermost thoughts. Absolutely. Um, and I love this that Rabbi Green points out that that it's just another metaphor. It doesn't mean it's the right one, the only one. It's another one. Some are vertical. There are days I lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes, please, God, my help. Right? Please, God, be my ozer, be my help. Because we just feel really small and really lost, and we look up, right? And we want mommy or daddy or somebody, right? Somebody to pick us up and make it okay. That's fine. But there are other metaphors, says Green. This is one of them where it's about, you know, more of a, I would say, you know, vertical, that it's about, I mean, uh, horizontal, that it's about, you know, going, you know, not only within me, because what he's saying is once I get to know more about me, truly know more about what goes on in here, I automatically know something about the human heart writ large. So I I automatically know horizontally way more, right? Aren't the wisest people you know the people who are very aware of what's going on in here? They're not, you, you can't have one without the other. They're not unrelated. Like people who know people are people who are very self-aware. 
Um, and so, the, the, so it's so, because it could be dangerous. If we're focusing on going in me, a uh, me, 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 the danger is it becomes very egocentric. It becomes very self preoccupied, navel gazing, not Jewish, Mehmet, to your point, not Jewish, nasal gate, nasal, and can never do it. Navel gazing is not Jewish. That's why we don't have monasteries. Um, because it's a temptation. Once you start to go in there, woo, that is a very serious temptation. But what Rabbi Green says is that it's not just about knowing my innerness and what happens for me. It's about through that knowing something about what happens for every human being and having and having more of a connection to that and more of a connection to those uh, those people. So Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, this is a beautiful teaching brought to us at Hartman by Rabbi Tamar Applebaum. Lech lecha me'artzecha. Go you from your Eretz, from your land. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel says, get away from your self-centered earthiness. Meaning literally, get away from the land, your, your, your way of seeing that's about the earth. El ha'aretz asher ereka. To the aretz, to the land that I will show you, meaning look at the land from the perspective of God. God is saying, I'll show you, meaning look at it through my glasses. It's not saying I'm going to show you a different land. It's saying leave the way you see the land and I will show you. What is God going to show Avraham? How to see things from God's perspective. The other commandment, is hebet nahashamayma? I brought you that text. It's on the sheet, uh, verse fifteen. Uh, look toward heaven. Words that are later echoed in the prophet's call. Blah 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 blah. blah. The Torah gives us a beautiful application of the wisdom we attain when we rise above the horizon of our limited perceptions. Habet nahashamayma usforet akochavim. Look towards the heaven and count the stars. So will be your seed. You look at a star from where you stand on earth. The star seems a very tiny, whatever that word is, twinkle of a light. Is this the right way to evaluate a star? Look heavenward and count the stars. Look, consider and evaluate stars the way they are in heaven. There, each star is a vast magnitude of marvelous meaning in sharp contrast to the way in which it is seen from the perspective of the earth. Look toward heaven and number the stars. So shall your descendants be. This is God's blessing to Abraham. Your descendants will be endowed with the ability to see heavenward. What? Right? That's the blessing that your offspring, your people, we will be through our tradition, through the wisdom, through the generations, through all of that. When we access it, when we study Torah, when we do this together, when we do Shabbos, when we observe sitting together in the sukkah and eating and drinking really good stuff. When we do that, we will be able to see things from a more godly perspective. That's the bracha. Barbara. I guess you already answered it, but my question is twofold. I wish the Torah was more expansive because I'm sure Abraham was 
frightened. <laughs> I would love to know what he felt when he was sent on this mission. And also, how did he know when he got there? There's a lot about going, but how do you, how did, how was he, how did, was it identified to him? What was the sign? What was the signal that he had arrived at where he, so to your uh, question, like on a GPS, right? <laughs> yeah, right. So to your questions, Barbara, I'm going to say this with all respect, which is Torah doesn't care. <laughs> you want it to be more expansive because you want Torah to care about what you care about. Torah doesn't care what Abram feels. Torah's not interested in the conversation he had with Sarai. I'm very interested. The rabbis were very interested. They wrote a whole lot of Midrash. Jody's super interested. The rabbis wrote reams of Midrash because they agree with you. But what they said is, okay, Torah doesn't say it. So maybe there's a word over there. Maybe there's a word in Psalms. Maybe there's a word in Joshua. Maybe there's a word in Chronicles that will signal to me something about what Abraham was feeling. And then they write that Midrash. You see what I'm saying? They, the rabbis have the same longing you do. Torah does not care. It was not the agenda of the folks writing or telling these stories to explicate what Avram's feeling. My hunch as, again, just as a cultural anthropology student for life, my hunch is it's because everyone knows what that means. Everyone knows what you're going to, and I don't, again, I'm not saying, saying it to be flip. Seriously. Torah knows that everyone knows what it's going to feel like to leave everything familiar. It's going to be terrifying. It's going to be disorienting. It's going to be scary. It's going to be lonely. It's got, right? Like, Torah doesn't have to say it. Torah's assuming, I'm assuming, that Torah's assuming, and the authors of Torah are assuming, that you know what it feels like as the listener to the story. That's not the point of the story. The point is that he goes anyway. The point is that he goes anyway. That's a Jewish story. But how you does he go anyway? Because <laughs> if he didn't go, we could, we could imagine that 742 people that God said this to said, Haha, that's very funny. <laughs> okay. Not going to happen, right? It, the story is about this guy because this is the guy that went, right? And, and that's, that's important. Okay. Oh, how are we at time already? I hate that. Okay. Uh, so we're gonna. Well, I'm not gonna be able to do what I wanted to do with you, which, which is this gorgeous midrash. But I want you to read it. Those of you who have it here in print, I want you to look at it. Um, it's 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 an amazing midrash that talks about a castle, um, and that the castle is uh, is um, lit up. And the same word in Hebrew that can mean lit up, biradoleket, uh, can also mean on fire. And so um, it is a beautiful midrash that right now, the reason I said about bringing it right now is because it does feel to me a little bit like, uh, yeah, the world is on fire. Um, and uh, anyone who wants to come be a son or a daughter of Avraham and Sarah or a non-binary um, descendant of Avraham and Sarah, the rabbis, some they use, some of them use this midrash in the Talmud to say the world is on fire and you're you're going to say no to somebody who's coming to grab a bucket right and help and help pour water on that fire that's what conversion to Judaism is is coming to grab a bucket how why how could you possibly responsibly say no to that um but it's also just a wonderful midrash about yeah the world's on fire what's our 
what's our response? Okay. Um, I do want to close with uh, reading one poem a student of mine wrote many years ago in Duluth. Or, or, actually, let me not say that. I don't have a name on it. It's either my student or Rabbi Rachel Rosenblatt for sure. So it's one of those two. It may be Rachel Rosenblatt, um, the Velveteen Rabbit, the Vel- Velveteen Rabbi. First step, Lech Lecha. It's not going to be easy. All of your roadmaps are wrong. That was another country. Those lakes have dried up. A new groundwater is welling in places you won't expect. You'll begin the journey in fog, destination unknown, impossible. Don't be surprised by tears. This right here is holy ground. Take a deep breath and turn away from cynicism and despair. Listen to the voice from on high and deep within, the one that says, I'm calling you to a place which I will show you, and take the first small step into the surprising sun. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.